This is the biggest story in the world. From The Guardian, a podcast series following the newspaper over three months as it tries to make an impact in a traditionally tricky area, climate change. Now, if you haven't listened to the last three episodes, I suggest you go back and start from the top. They're revealing. The Guardian is letting us behind the scenes to listen in. So you've got a lot of flailing around, arguing, worrying, soul searching. But if you want to jump straight in here, or if you need a recap, here it is. The premise is this. Pretty soon the world will be unfit to live in, if you believe in climate change, as 97% of scientists do. We know this, so do the politicians. Yet, we're at an impasse. Episode 1 acknowledged this. Leave it on the ground. Keep oil in the soil and the coal in the hole. We can't burn all the fuel we've already found. Episode 2 reached the conclusion, after a fairly heated debate, that for a global political solution to work, like affecting the Paris summit at the end of the year, you need public pressure. If we want to change the world, and I think this is why Alan has brought us together today, then we've got to actually deploy the measures which are going to change the world. In episode three, The Guardian became a campaigning organization. I also think that having multiple targets makes this more complex. For climate change, campaigning means divestment. A movement that is growing around the world, calling for large organizations to pull their savings out of fossil fuel companies, to essentially boycott them. The Guardian wanted to focus. It picked two targets to ask to divest. Not the worst kids on the block, nice liberal ones. A little like The Guardian, who are doing good stuff, but shouldn't be in the messy world of oil, gas, and coal. They were the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust. All this has been pretty theoretical up to this point, but four episodes in, and we've gone public. Go, go, go. Here's what it looks like on the site. Your screen more or less went black. Sticky. Menacing. Dripping oil jumped in your face as you tried to read something and slid down the screen, sliding down the front page. Yeah, the first thing you saw was, this is not an ad. This is a, this is a big thing, you know. We wanted to make this big, bold, visual statement. We wanted something that was, in a digital context, the equivalent of, of what we were doing in print by wrapping the newspaper and making the statement that this is an important thing, you know. Taking over the homepage, covering up the main headlines of the day, that's a really big deal. And when it dissolved, um, you had the choice to go to the petition page. Asking people to sign up to a letter to the Wellcome Trust and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, encouraging them to divest. By the end of the first week, so in sort of five days, we were up to 100,000, which I've come to learn is a benchmark of sorts for having some credibility as a, as a petition, so so that's great. Well done, team. And an update. 174,000 sign-ups now. Phase one completed. Emails collected. But what does The Guardian do with them now? That leads us to phase two, the campaign. It's something that's been troubling Amanda Mickle, The Guardian's senior editor for strategy and partnerships. I think a really interesting question for us is, what is The Guardian's campaign model? Um, 
mean, certainly, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from the U.S. I've seen a lot of debate and discussion in the U.S. around this, principally around, you know, what does it mean that a news organization's campaigning? By and large, we're a bunch of journalists who do journalism and, and don't really uh, have in-depth uh, know-how when it comes to campaigning. As a news organization, we have a really fast metabolism. So what we do today, we can forget tomorrow, right? And, you know, a campaign is certainly looking towards tomorrow, but you're also bringing everyone along with you. And so... You know, if we have a petition on the site, it means that not only are we asking people to sign the petition, but we also need to go back to them and explain what has been the impact of the petition. What are we actually going to do um, now that we have a petition on the site? And so there's there's a real feedback loop between our work and our readers that's, I think, new for us. Amanda thought it might be useful for Rick and Patel to come and talk to The Guardian. He's part of Avaz, the world's largest and most powerful online activist network. For Rickon, though, the subject divestment is a pretty tough sell. It, you have a story that says we got to keep it in the ground to save the climate. How do we keep it in the ground? Well, not sure. Maybe it's a global climate agreement and a legal regulation that keeps it in the ground. How do you get that? Well, you need the politicians to come together. What's the problem with that? Well, the fossil fuel companies are lobbying the politicians not to do that. Well, how do we affect that? Well, if we affect brand fossil fuel companies, it will limit their influence on politicians. Well, how do we affect that? Well, if we divest from fossil fuel companies, it will affect their... Like, it's a very complex theory of change. Um, I think you can summarize it. I think you have done it well. You know, you, 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 have, you have done your best on it. Um, but, it, but that's what I see as part of the challenge in the, in the campaigning messaging around this. A question first, from the editor-in-chief. Our very first discussion was precisely about a much simpler uh, idea, which was, it, it, in the end, it's all going to be decided in Paris or through a treaty. It's going to be government action, not corporations. That, but we thought, A, what are the chances of that? And B, that's just not very motivating because people... So, but if we had gone down that route... Um, would that have been a motivating campaign? Uh, or, or, I or think so. Think? I mean, that's where we're focused. They're going to Paris. So all of our testing has yielded that that focus. I, I, I don't want to. I think the the divestment path is good. It's politically smart. I'm just saying, from a from from our all of our testing, we've found this Paris and particularly the long term goal. If the world commits itself to a zero carbon world, it will send that signal to the fossil fuel industry that your days are numbered, and all those investment decisions will shift. That's the one that we found really people get and they're like on for much more easily. Divestment, Rickon was saying. It just didn't really hit the mark with the average Joe or Jane. People weren't all that interested. Um, you know, having the leader of arguably the world's most successful campaigning organi- organization saying that they had thought about it and decided it was a non-starter, um, you know, did, did make me think, you know, what on earth are we doing? I suppose, you know, the broader goal of all of this is about uh, somehow transmitting to the politicians that there is uh, a civil society movement that really cares about this. But The Guardian has picked this course. They are where they are and they need to make the best they can of it. And so it's time for the team to gather, take stock, plan out the rest of the campaign and take a look at the potential risks ahead. First, getting run over by the election. Just people will eventually all be thrown at that. It's resources as well, isn't it? You go to the picture desk, you go to various bits and everything. Visuals in general are going to be fairly consumed for the next five weeks. We have to have full-time dev and full-time design on that. Okay. There's got to, there's got to be a lot of push in the newsroom, especially as it gets nearer. 
but that's a, a shorter term thing. Like the pressure on Aaron's team is now, the pressure on the rest of us will hit two or three weeks before. And is that is that easy to accommodate? I mean, if we could if we could magic the budget, which I think we can, it 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 it's manageable. I mean, you you yeah, you can you can manage the people. Yeah, great. Then date numbers. The whole carbon budget, as outlined by Bill McKibben, was based on a now slightly out-of-date paper from five years ago. That budget's already gone and the science has moved on. So I just think we need to be a bit careful of not framing the entire thing around those numbers. And? Uh, not getting, you're not getting anything we can feel internally and externally is a win. But what does success look like? Well, I mean, yeah, this is the the big question. I mean, we've set ourselves this incredible task. Over to James Randerson. And you know, if we're quite quite honest, we're not sure we're going to win this at all. What is the response from our targets? They haven't sort of immediately said, yes, we'll do everything you want. I never expected that. Gates has come back and said, you know, we respect the passion on show here and we broadly sort of agree with you, but they just don't agree on the divestment route. It wasn't a sort of, you know, complete brick wall rejection. Um, and so that feels to me like there's something we can work with. And I hope that, you know, over the coming weeks, as we sort of build this argument um, and build a coalition, you know, I, I just really hope that they will change their minds. With Welcome, it's been, the response is slightly more f- fleshed out. Jeremy Farrer, the CEO, got back to us with a comment piece in which he explained his thinking. His line of argument is is around engagement, and he says that we do think about these things deeply, but we we believe that it's better to engage with these companies and have a presence than it is to just leave. I mean, he, he sort of referred to divestment as a grand gesture that you can only do once, and then after that you know you have no influence and... Inevitably, other people will buy the shares and, you know, your ability to shape things is is lost. Now the team needs to come up with some solutions. We sort of say this was a a focus, this was one thing that we're doing and we're sure they've got to think about it harder and be made to think about it harder. But we've given unprecedented focus to an issue that's huge. We've got all these people together in all these different places. These other organisations in that time have divested or said they're investigating it. And lots more will happen off the back of this. It's the start of something. And this is an issue that needs fixing over the next generation. Yeah, uh, so, I mean, I was uh, terribly depressed to sort of see the the headline on the response of the welcome yesterday. But then reading it more closely, they're they're papering over some positions uh, there that they've already taken that we we can tease out from them or we ought to be able to. Particularly, they say, they, they accept that they do consider environment when they make their investment decisions. Now, why aren't those considerations public? The other thing I would say is is on, on the engagement point. They make you know they say we you know we we believe in in engagement, right? It wasn't so long ago they were invested in Exxon. How did that go? And how's their how's their engagement going with BP? I, I really think that there's tons of sort of cracks if you look for them in in that letter that I think we can go at. I think in the bigger picture, the reason why we called on them was we were asking them to exert leadership. Right, and that we wanted them to have a ripple effect in the industry. And so I think to the extent that there's a move they can make to demonstrate leadership, that would be sufficient. Um, and so that, what you were suggesting, Simon, I think is one way of doing it. I feel like we should 
be able to reframe this around like these are two very powerful organizations that should take much more of a demonstrable stand on the environment and that they can and in doing so can persuade others that more can be done and more can be done quickly um, and one may be actually asking Gates to make the environment much more I don't I, I would have to figure out how to frame it but to actually have him take a stand on making it a key issue or appeal to him enough that he would give it more focus. Um, just just to add to the things we might think about, because uh, our, our targets are Gates and Welcome, it's possible that GMG may not go in the direction that we want. Um, so it, we might just want to sort of think separately about how we would react and as a paper, how we would handle that in terms of trying to persuade GMG to change. Well, I, I, can't, I can't promise that GMG are going to, to do what we would like them to do. So, so, in, in, so that, that, that obviously creates a problem for the campaign. Readers re will react in a way they, they, they may want to start their own campaign against GMG. Uh, where does that lead the journalists? Alan sounds worried, doesn't he? He said last episode he'd run this campaign even if GMG didn't divest. But he's right. It certainly makes this campaign harder for all if they don't. An email from the Guardian Media Group's chairman, Neil Burkett. He wants to meet in the studio. Would you one tiny bit more level from you just before? Yeah, I, I, I've just had avocado on sourdough for my breakfast. I don't know what Neil's had. I had muesli. We had muesli, I can't believe it. I had muesli, I had raspberries, and I had goat yogurt. God. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely <laughs> genuinely serious. That's what I had for breakfast Bloody this morning. Hell. Enough small talk. We're recording. So, Neil, um, I think GMG is making an announcement today. Um, do you want to tell us what that is? We yep. have made the decision that we are aiming in the medium term to divest of all fossil fuels within our £800 million portfolio. And we aim to invest proactively in terms of ensuring that, uh, you know, we support uh, new investments that are supportive of climate change. The Guardian is divesting. A smile from Alan. I must admit, even, even I'm a bit surprised by the, by the speed of the decision making. Can you just talk about, about why this was something that you were able to decide pretty quickly on in the end? We, we wanted to make a decision one way or the other in a pretty tight time frame for obvious reasons. I.e. the Guardian's Keep It in the Ground campaign. When we started the review, if I had to guess what the outcome was going to be, I would not have guessed the outcome that we arrived at. You know, our initial view, in fact, when you and I first started to talk about it, was, oh my goodness me, this is hard. And as time went on, we decided that we actually had to be braver because the economic and social arguments became more and more compelling. You know, the further you delved into um, the analytics and the, the more we started to understand uh, the role that we could play in changing industry. But I think we were thorough. What was the process? Because this is something I remember we first talked about this uh, a couple of months ago. What have been the nature of the discussions and what were the factors that uh, you had to balance as chair of the organisation? Was it a vote? Who made the final call? Yeah, um, 
it's a it's 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 the right question because it's it's been complicated. Um, there's been lots of debates, as you can imagine. How can we be responsible as a board, where our principal accountability is to fund the Guardian in perpetuity, and and how could we? Uh, go about putting uh, the annuity stream that comes from our, our investment at risk. But as we started to analyse our portfolio, we got to a point where we felt you could see that you could generate at least equal returns. So in theory, the Guardian won't be worse off. Can you just talk a bit about the investment committee? So what, what were the kind of people that made this decision? I mean, you've confessed that you had muesli for breakfast this morning, but... Um, the, the people sitting around that table, if I can use crude stereotypes, are not necessarily your stereotypical muesli eaters, are they? Um, no, they're, they're, they're not. You know, I, I can actually remember when the Scotch Trust interviewed me uh, to chair GMG, and I said, if you're looking for somebody, you know, stereotypically Guardian reader, left of centre, I'm not your person. Um, I said, I, I politically, I sit right of centre. Um, and I think there's a reasonable spread of, uh, of, of political bias across the GMG board, as you would expect. In an earlier episode of this podcast series, I, I was asked what I would do as editor if, if GMG decided not to shift. Um, let, let me try the question the other way around. Um, if, if The Guardian had carried on its campaign and you had felt strongly as an investment committee that you didn't want to move, presumably you'd have felt the same. You'd have thought, well, yeah. the Guardian can think what it likes. Our job is different. Um, yes, it is. I, th- I think to make a decision, a black and white decision, excluding the content of the asset that we ultimately fund, you know, i.e. the Guardian, is a bit naive. But if we reach the conclusion that right now to divest, for example, was too great a risk and with the, we felt that it, it just didn't allow us the flexibility to get the sort of returns that we think we need to fund the Guardian in perpetuity, then we would have made a different decision. Um, and that would have been a bit awkward, wouldn't it? Um, I guess we're fortunate that we don't have to have that debate. A complex process for the board, but a win in a program full of risks. Neil leaves the room. Alan leans back, takes a sip of water. How do you feel, Alan? Well, I, I'm, um, uh, I thought that was a rather remarkable uh, conversation. Um, I, I got mixed messages um, last week, so uh, I'm, I'm relieved, <laughs> obviously, because um, the thought of The Guardian being on uh, collision course with GMG is not a happy one, so I'm relieved that we're on the same path. Uh, and I, f- I feel it's rather, uh, I hope this is a sort of inspirational moment for others because, you know, as Neil was saying just then, you know, the, the people who sit around the investment committee are not woolly liberals. They're all um, extremely experienced businessmen and women. Uh, and you can be sure that the decision they've reached is not out of any sentimental grounds. It's, it's a hard-nosed business decision. And I think that a fund of this size moving uh, will have quite important ripple effects. And do you think this will um, affect our own campaign 
uh, with Welcome and Gates? I mean, you know, I come back to the answer that, 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 that if you were Welcome and Gates looking at this and looked at the calibre of the people sitting around the investment committee and the, the sort of people they are, um, I think you'd be impressed by that. And if they can do it, then why can't we? Next week, we dig into the numbers of all this. If you decide to leave two-thirds of all the fossil fuels in the ground worth trillions of dollars, what does that mean to the world's economy? That would be the equivalent of the subprime crisis. It would be probably worse. Economics editor Larry Elliott has been tasked with finding a way to prevent that crash. The biggest story in the world is narrated by me, Alex Kratoski. It's produced by Alana Chance, Lindsay Poulton, Matt Hill, and Lucy Greenwell. Sound and mixing is by Chris Wood, and head of audio is Jason Fitz. The executive producer is Francesca Panetta. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, you know the rest. Search for the biggest story in the world and subscribe.